So earlier in the service, we recited the Apostles' Creed. That's an ancient confession that goes all the way back to the first century, and it basically is a summary of what the early Christians believed was true about Christ and true about the Holy Spirit and true about God. And while that can be a study in and of itself, you can take a line of the Apostles' Creed and make it a study itself, I'm going to talk about two lines in that creed today as we continue our series called Curator, Repairing the Damaged Frames. And today we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. However, one of the things that we fail to understand is the resurrection itself is not the end. So the last two messages in this series, we're going to talk next week about the appearances of Jesus to various people. And so that's kind of still along the lines of Easter. And then two weeks from today, we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus. What does that mean? And why did he ascend? And so that will then close off this series that we have been in for the last several weeks. Now, what I want to talk about today builds on all that we have said before. So in this curator series, we've been looking at the major events of Jesus. We talked about the temptation of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, the warnings that Jesus gave to the people in his community about the oncoming um, uh, war with the Romans that happened in the first century, the parables, teaching parables of Jesus we talked a little bit about, and then we talked about the death of Jesus a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We talked about how you look at the death of Jesus through various lenses, that there's not just one lens to look through. And then last week, we talked about the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And so today, now, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and here's a basic outline of what I want to tell you this morning. His Easter, our Easter. Simple enough, right? His Easter, our Easter. Okay, so here's what I want to think about. The two lines from the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to take the second line first and then come back to the one that precedes it. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. Those are the two lines. So the second line talks about the Easter that celebrates Jesus coming back from the dead. The resurrection is that which we celebrate today, and I want you to think of it in these terms. His Easter, the risen Christ, brings to us a new kingdom, a new reality, gives to us the possibility of a new humanity, and gives to us new hope. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a vindication by God the Father of all that Jesus taught. Remember that the central theme of Jesus is not going to heaven after you die, but the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, he tells us the kingdom of God is near. It has come. It's available. Step into it. So the kingdom of God is this triumph of a peaceable kingdom over the violent ways of the world, in particular Rome and other empires like it. Easter changes everything because it offers a new kingdom built upon the new life of Christ from the grave. Easter is the hope of a new world, the dawn of a new age, the rising of a new horizon, 
And so Easter is God's way of saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Pay attention to his teachings because it gives to us a new reality. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has given the world a new ultimate reality. Here's the reality. Love for God and love for neighbor are the two things that are most important. And because of Christ and his resurrection, the Roman cross no longer represents torture and death as it once did. It now represents love and forgiveness. Jesus used an implement of violence and war to offer the world an alternative to violence and war. And that is the new reality. But it is built upon a new humanity. This new humanity called the church, the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who become the fleshed out presence of Jesus in the world gives to the world a new trajectory. Tra trajectory excuse me. In other words, now we have something that can look toward the future, and here is this new humanity, a humanity of gardeners turning garbage dumps into gardens and swords into plowshares and war waging into peacemaking. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a successful conclusion to the story of Jesus himself. It is the dawn of a new creation. When Jesus appears to his disciples, and we'll, we'll look at this next week, in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21, the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth when he appears to his disciples is, peace be with you. The first words of this new kingdom, this new reality, and the offer of new, a new humanity is a word of peace. And that gives to us a new hope. God gave the definitive answer to the existential questions that we all carry in our hearts. Questions of death and life. And what happens beyond this life. So his Easter could be summarized in this way. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15.54 Paul later will write, We know that if this earthly tent, our physical body, we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Jesus put it a little bit more simply when he said, whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John eleven twenty five 25 through 26. So you can see here the Easter, that first celebration on that Sunday so long ago is the resurrection of Jesus is a vindication of who he is and what he taught and there is now this new ultimate reality and Jesus is the firstborn of this new humanity that offers the world hope. I like the way the theologian Paul Tillich put it. He wrote, the face of every man shows the trace of the presence of death in this life, of his fear of death, of his courage toward death and of his resignation to death. This frightful presence of death subjects man to bondage and servitude all of his life. But because Christ lives through his resurrection, we can turn from the fear of death to understand the promise and hope and assurance that there is life beyond death. And that's what leads us into our Easter. Our Easter depends on his Easter. The resurrection of Jesus opens the way of resurrection and the promise of everlasting life to each and every person here this morning.
Now, many, many centuries ago, the church split into a faction of East versus West, and that's a part of church history. You're not getting into that. But each side of the church, the Western church and the Eastern church, emphasized the resurrection of Jesus in kind of a different uh, emphasis. So in the Western church, of which all of us who live in the West here is primarily shaped by, we tend to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus alone. Sort of a one-time miracle that happened in the body of Jesus, and we're all here to cheer on for Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you came back from the dead. And that is part of the point, but it misses another point. Remember I mentioned the two phrases, he descended to the dead, and on the third day he arose. The second emphasis here is on he descended to the dead. And the passages of scripture that I read for us this morning emphasize that element of the freedom that is given to all of us. So in 1504, when the East and the West Church split, the Eastern side of the church, which is called the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church places an emphasis on Good Friday through Easter as the emphasis of what is called the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell. Now I want you to look at this painting. If you take a close look at it, Jesus is rising from the dead, but he's bringing others with him. Now look down at the bottom of this picture. In this painting, you'll see below the feet of Jesus, there's all kinds of locks that are, uh, are pictured there. At the, in other words, Jesus broke the bondage to death. And the locks and chains that are at the bottom of the picture is the emphasis of the Eastern Church, which is talking about how between Good Friday and Easter, Jesus descended. Now, some versions of the Apostles' Creed talk about how he descended into hell. It's probably not the best translation. It's the idea of Hades. It's the idea of the place of the dead. He descended into the place of the dead, where all people go when they die. They are placed into the ground, usually. What it emphasizes is our own mortality. In other words, our own frailty, that none of us are able to overcome death. But in that time between Good Friday and Easter, what we find is Jesus descends into the place of the dead, but he comes out victorious, and we come out victorious with him. See? He descended to the place of the dead, but that's not the end of it. He is alive. Have you ever wondered about this one verse that I read during our scripture reading? This is in Matthew 27. Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split apart and the tombs were opened and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. Isn't that a curious passage of scripture? Wouldn't that freak you out? if you lived in the first century, to see that happen? What is going on here? Well, in the idea in Matthew and a couple places in Peter, what we find is that the Eastern Church is emphasizing the victory of Jesus over death will liberate people who have been held bondage in death. And the idea is this liberation is such that it gives to us 
not only a new freedom, but this new hope that I'm going to describe for you in a moment as a feast. So the resurrection of Jesus emphasizes that he's the new Lord that gives new life beyond the grave, and he overpowers Satan, and he allows us to have a new freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, to understand that, yes, while we pass away from this life, what we understand is resurrection awaits us. I'll talk about that more in just a second. So the Eastern imagery here suggests a hopeful message, not only about Jesus, but about all of society, all of humanity, and even history itself, that because he is raised, we too can be raised above every crucifixion as we might experience. What type of crucifixion is that? Well, it's not just hanging on a cross. We all experience crucifixion whether it is a literal cross like Jesus, but more importantly, the symbolic one of war and poverty and torture and hunger and injustice, all of those are crucifixions of sort because the system of the world forces us to die in many ways. But we come back to life because Christ is raised and we have this new hope. And this new hope is pictured as a new feast. So I think all of us, at points in our life have asked this question, what happens after we die? It's a question I think that all human beings have asked over the centuries. And what we understand is as far back as the earliest civilizations, we see that there are individuals that have asked this question and they have attempted to answer it by what they have left beyond, behind and what we have discovered. So let's go move ahead here. That is the tomb of a pharaoh. And the picture of it is this idea that the pharaoh, when he is placed into his tomb, there are various items that are placed in the tomb with him that he might need for the afterlife. So many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to see the artifacts from King Tut's tomb up at the Museum of History in Chicago. This is all the way back in the 70s when I was going to Moody. And uh, all of the artifacts that were placed in the tomb that was discovered by the archaeologists and stuff is quite amazing when you think about the worth of all of these pieces of gold and things that are in there. And why does King Tut need all this gold? Why does King Tut need all these items? Obviously, within the Egyptian mindset, there's this idea of there's this afterlife, this afterlife that uh, the Pharaoh is going to, and he needs these items for whatever life lies beyond the grave. So a few years back, I did a funeral for a fireman, a Chinese guy uh, in the city of Willowick, it was fascinating, out at the graveside, um, this uh, Chinese family, and I think this is an Asian culture thing, they take money and they take a tin can. And after I was done giving the committal, they put money in the tin can, they place it beside the grave, and they light it on fire so that this incense of the money will go to wherever their loved one has gone because he's going to need these resources in the afterlife. Now, what's my point in all of this? All of us, 
since the beginning of civilization, have often asked the question, what happens after we die? And what do we need as we enter into the next life? Did you know this picture here of Stonehenge in England is originally thought to be some type of altar, a druid altar, until archaeological evidence shows us by the finding of many human bones in and around Stonehenge, that this is an ancient burial ground. And what, it, what we find is that they were thinking about the life to come, and they set up these memorials as a way of preparing for the next life. And here we are, all these many years later, and these stones are still standing. And, and they are representative of the fact that all of us Every single one of us, no matter where we live or when we live, think about this question, what happens after we die? You know, death is the one shared experience of all human beings. It's what unites us all. We wrestle with our own mortality and we wonder, perhaps, is there hope for something beyond this life? The response of Jesus is the response to death. And let me go back here, this is where the idea of a new feast comes in. So the only way the Bible describes what happens after we die is through metaphors. And in these figures of speech, what we find is the hope that we have. And one of the metaphors that is often used in the Bible is that of a wedding reception. And what we find is this idea of the wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. But it goes all the way back, even earlier into the Old Testament, where we find the prophet Isaiah says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear, and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the sheet that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isn't that cool? In other words, there's this picture, the only way we can describe it, of what life is like after we die, is like a wedding feast, a feast that has been prepared for us, and we enter into the presence of the Lord, and as I often say in many of the memorial services that I do, and that is, there is reunion with those that we have already lost. And so, his Easter, he comes alive, he establishes his kingdom, and he verifies his lordship, and now our Easter, this promise of life after we die that I have no full explanation for. What is heaven like? Good question. I can't tell you. I don't know. All I can do is speak in metaphors like they do in the Bible. But what I do know is it is this promise that helps us to understand that death has been swallowed up in victory. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. A rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It is degraded when it's put into the ground, but it is raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. It's a physical body when it is put into the ground, but it's raised a spiritual body. 
And when the rotting body has been clothed and what can't decay, and the dying body has been clothed and what can't die, then this statement of Scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by victory. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 and verse 54. So this promise of life after death, while we can't describe it in great detail, what we do know is by the images that are used that it is a promise of a feast of reunion and it gives to us the promise of a resurrected body. Now I've often had people ask me this, come the time of the resurrection, how will God put us all back together? People have been lost at sea, people have been cremated, people have deteriorated in their grave. And I don't have the answer to to that question, except we'll talk next week about this in the appearances of Christ, that there was some element about Christ that was recognizable and some elements about Christ that see even some of the earliest people that saw him alive from the grave did not recognize. Isn't that interesting? They didn't recognize him and yet they could tell by the scars in his hand that that's who he is. So here's where the modern work of DNA, I think, helps us. We now know that our physical bodies are a result of an amazingly complex sequence of uh, acids called DNA. This is essentially our software as a human being. And it's what makes us completely different than everybody else. My DNA is not like yours and your DNA is not like mine. It's unique, it's sort of like our thumbprint. What I love about this idea is God has our DNA DNA on file. (laughs) And come our time to be resurrected, he re-implements that DNA. And I think that's the promise that allows us to understand that while there are going to be things that are different about us in, in, uh, in our resurrected body, there are some things that are not different, that we will be recognizable. So, you know, this discussion continues on, well, when I am resurrected, how old will I be? Will I have a full head of hair or will I still have a receding hairline? You know, all those type of questions. And we don't know, have no idea how to answer that question. But what I do know is this, is you are you and I am me. And whatever makes us that in our own DNA, God knows that. He has that software on file and he will download it into our resurrected body. Does that give us hope? Absolutely. Does that give us promise? Absolutely. Does that give us the excitement of reunion of those that have gone before us that we want to be reunited with? Absolutely. So his Easter, he's alive, he's Lord, he introduces this kingdom, and we get to be a part of this new humanity. Our Easter. He descended to the dead and he led captivity captive, and he sets us free. And while we all don't know exactly what we experience when we pass away, here's what I do know. That death does not have the last word. Death might be a simple interruption for the long-term objective of God to make us who we are where there is no more crying and there is no more tears. Paul 
uh, put it that way in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's the way John the Revelator puts it in the book of Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, and I end with this. God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. So what is it that we're celebrating today? The way the Eastern Church put it is the harrowing of hell the breaking of the bondage of the chains. And what we find is that all of mankind, going all the way back to Egypt, going all the way back to Stonehenge, is looking for this promise of life beyond this life. And that's why we come together here this morning, remembering that this is Resurrection Sunday. Stand with me, would you please, as we close our time together. I'd like to close with the Lord's Prayer. Would you recite it with me, please? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. I hope you have a wonderful day. Happy Easter, everyone. We'll see you soon. God bless you.